Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Stephen Kotkin, the Klein Heinz Senior Fellow of the Hoover Institution and the director of our new Hoover History Lab. And today I have the honor, actually, it's thrilling to be able to introduce uh, Mel Leffler. Mel is uh, an institution, and so an introduction could never do him justice. He's professor of American history emeritus at University of Virginia, and he's known to everyone as the living dean of U.S. Cold War history. In addition to all the work up till now that you'll know Mel is well known for, he's got a book on confronting Saddam Hussein, George W. Bush, and the invasion of Iraq, uh, which has uh, actually... Uh, achieved considerable acclaim, despite the fact that it revises the story that we think we know, the conventional wisdom, meaning upending a lot of people's beliefs and interests in the story that Mel's new evidence and argumentation address. I'm going to pass around a copy of the book. It's inscribed to me. So I don't think you should try to walk away with it by accident <laughs> because you'll be found out when they turn to the title page. But anyway, uh, today's talk on the book, without further ado, warm welcome, the giant Mel Leffler. Thanks very much, Steve. It's uh, really a great pleasure to be here. Um, as I mentioned earlier this morning, but my first work was on Herbert Hoover and American foreign policy long, long ago. So it's sort of nice to come back to the uh, Hoover Institution, a, a place where really some of, not the place, but really focus on a man um, or remember a man who's uh, shaped a lot of my own scholarship uh, during, during my early years when I wrote about Republican foreign policy in the 1920s and early 1930s. Uh, my topic today, of course, is a very different one, very different from uh, the many books I've written uh, about the Cold War. It's an effort to sort of explain and illuminate uh, America's uh, venture in Iraq uh, under George W. Bush. I think talking about this today literally is so salient to our own moment. When you think about the way Israeli policymakers are grappling with the challenges they face after a surprise, shocking attack uh, that they had not anticipated. I can just imagine having studied the aftermath of 9-11, I can just imagine the different fears, anxieties, emotions, the sense of humiliation, the quest for revenge that's shaping the thinking of policymakers in, in Israel today. And when I retell this story or summarize some of the most salient aspects of, of my book, I think it behooves us to think you know, what lessons might be learned from this? You know, what, what can we extrapolate from, from this experience of the American invasion of Iraq in 2003? I think my, my book deals 
uh, with what I consider, and I think a lot of people consider, the most consequential American foreign policy decision since the end of the Cold War. The invasion of Iraq and the insurrection and counterinsurgency that followed the sectarian bloodletting inside Iraq, the civil war that evolved in, inside Iraq had a devastating impact. It led to a tragedy. The invasion of Iraq culminated in my view in a tragedy. 200,000 Iraqis died in the ensuing conflict and civil war. Nine million Iraqis were displaced. 9,000 American soldiers and private contractors died. It's estimated now that the cost of the American adventure in Iraq, not in Iraq and Afghanistan, but in Iraq itself, will cost about $2 trillion over the years. There were serious geopolitical consequences that ensued from the invasion of Iraq. Most people would agree that the embroilment inside Iraq diverted attention from the reconstruction and stabilization of Afghanistan. The involvement in Iraq and the civil, civil strife inside that country contributed to the ascendancy of Iran in the Persian Gulf region. The American embroilment in Iraq, the quagmire in Iraq, divided the United States from its major European allies. It fueled the sense of grievance amongst Muslims around the world. It heightened anti-Americanism, and it actually complicated George W. Bush's so-called global war on terror. And just as importantly, the invasion and the war divided the American people contributed enormously to partisan rifts inside the United States and had a tremendous impact on Americans' faith in their own government. It clearly sundered faith in, in, in the American government amongst Americans. So if the legacy of the war is as I just summarized it, the essential question that has motivated so many of us is why war? Why did the United States, why did the Bush administration go to war? And why the tragedy that ensued as a result of the occupation? Now, in writing this book, my purpose, unlike that of many other journalists and quite a few scholars, my, my purpose in writing this book was not to indict the Bush administration, nor was my purpose to acquit the Bush administration. My book is, is really a, an effort to understand why the war happened, why the invasion happened, why the occupation got off to such a terrible start, 
I really want to explain rather than to indict or to acquit. And I hope that the explanation helps me and others extrapolate some key lessons. I, I tried to follow in writing this book, I tried to follow wherever the evidence led me. Sometimes the evidence led to some rather original and I think compelling conclusions. And sometimes the book reaffirms what people already know. Now, some of the most original conclusions of the book or important points of the book relate to my demonstration that George W. Bush himself was the key decision maker on all matters regarding Iraq. George W. Bush was the key decision maker, not Vice President Cheney, not Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, and certainly not the neocons in the administration like Paul Wolfowitz and, and Doug Fife. Bush was the key decision maker on all issues related to Iraq. I also demonstrate that regime change was not a key priority of President Bush's when he took office. In contrast to what so many others have written, I think I demonstrate pretty persuasively that the invasion of Iraq was on nobody's mind in January, February, March 2001, when the Bush administration took office, and certainly not on Bush, Bush's mind, even though even though he did embrace theoretically the policy of regime change, it was not a priority and no war planning took place prior to 9-11. And I also show in my book what's pretty important and, and often um, seen otherwise was that the inauguration of war planning, which did occur in December of 2001, three months after 9-11, that the inauguration of war planning, I argue in the book, did not mean war. War planning did not mean that Bush was inevitably going to go to war. And I also show that there was a strategy that what, pol what policymakers were engaged in was a strategy which Condi Rice herself liked to call coercive diplomacy. I show there was a strategy, but I also explain and anal analyze why that strategy was flawed. Now, I use a variety of sources to, to write this book. Um, I used as many declassified American documents as, as one could access at this point in time, which in the totality is a tiny percentage of what exists. There will be hundreds of thousands, millions of documents that will come out uh, in the future. And um, right now, scholars like myself only have access to a limited number of declassified documents stemming from Freedom of Information Acts and uh, uh, requests and mandatory declassification requests. I tried to use as many of these declassified US documents as I could. What's also very important in my book, however, um, were well, the documents and interviews that have emerged from the British parliamentary uh, inquiry called the Chilcot Inquiry. Basically, the British Parliament, sometime I think it was around 2010, 
authorized an overall investigation of why did Tony Blair take Great Britain into the war on the, on the side of George W. Bush. The focus of the Chilcot inquiry after Lord Chilcot, the, the chairman of the inquiry, the focus was not on American foreign policy at all. It was on British policy. But in the interviews and in the documents that were declassified and ultimately went up on a big website, uh, British policymakers all the time talked about their interactions with um, their American counterparts. Tony Blair's interview with the commission was something like 1,500 pages over several days. Jack Straws, the foreign minister, about 1,000 pages. Um, many documents, as they alluded to documents, those documents were subsequently declassified, and Blair talks about his discussions with President Bush. David Manning, Blair's, Blair's national security advisor, talks extensively about his very, very, very frequent telephone conversations with Condi Rice. Jack Straw talks about his conversations and meetings with uh, Secretary of State Powell and so on and so, so forth. So I use a lot of these British documents that were extremely helpful to me. I used some of the captured Iraqi documents, some of which are here at the, at the Hoover institutions. I don't read Arabic. I use the ones that have been translated and have gone up on, on websites. I tried in my last chapter of the book that deals a lot with the, with the U.S. inspection teams in Iraq uh, in December, January, February 2003, I used U.N. sources. And finally, what's distinctive about my book um, is the set of interviews that I myself conducted with virtually every single leading member of the administration, um, except for President Bush himself, who never agreed to have an interview uh, with, with me uh, um, be, before I wrote the book. Since writing the book, I have had an interview with him, but, um, th but <laughs> it, did, it but did not inform the book itself. So yes, I spoke at great length maybe 10, 12, 13 hours with Paul Wolfowitz, three and a half hours with Vice President Cheney. I spoke to Condi Rice. I spoke to President Bush's daily CIA briefer, Michael Morell, for five or six hours. I spoke to the deputy director of the CIA, John McLaughlin. I spoke to some lower level officials like Seth Karras, who was uh, Vice President Cheney's bioterrorist ex ex expert. So the, these interviews uh, complemented the written documents that, that I had available. In general, I would say that there are four big themes to my book, four big themes, which each one can be stated with one word. I emphasize fear. I emphasize the influence of power. I stress the significance of hubris. And I explain how important was dysfunction. Those are the four big themes of the book, fear, power, hubris, dysfunction. Fear of another attack. 
extreme worry and apprehension about another attack after 9-11. Power, the belief amongst policymakers <coughs> that they possessed the military capabilities to deal with the threats that they perceived. Hubris, the assumption that Iraqis would embrace American forces, the assumption that the United States represented an exemplary society with superior political institutions that others would want to embrace and follow. And then finally, dysfunction. The dysfunction inside the administration, the poor planning, the inability to determine foremost priorities. These four things, fear, power, hubris, dysfunction, are what contributed to the decision to go to war and what contributed to the dislocation and strife in the immediate aftermath of America's defeat of Iraqi military capabilities. I stress complexity and contingency in the book. I stress complexity and contingency. I talk about the very complex set of factors that led to war and that contributed to tragedy. Unlike most books, it's not like oil was the defining factor or Israel. In fact, those two things hardly appear at all in my book because there's almost no evidence that oil and Israel were significant contributing factors to the decision to invade Iraq. But I do talk at great length about the interactions between emotions, interests, <laughs> ideals, and ideas. I try to weave these things together in a complex portrait of American decision-making. Emotions like fear of another attack, guilt over the fact that policymakers knew that 9-11 had happened on their watch and that they had not taken the warnings about the Al-Qaeda threat with, with sufficient seriousness. Not necessarily that they could have thwarted 9-11, but they knew inside their own minds, and they often said it, that they had not taken the threats seriously enough. Emotions, the sadness and the grief that truly engulfed the policymakers. Look at President Bush's face sometimes if you see videos or images of his meeting people in New York or Washington at the Pentagon after 9-11, those from the families who had lost loved ones. But along with fear and guilt and sadness and grief went anger, humiliation, a lust for revenge, and somehow the historian and scholar sort of grappling with the decision to invade Iraq needs to assimilate these very discordant emotions, fear, revenge, grief, humiliation. 
but one also needs to sort of focus on the interests. Policymakers were extraordinarily preoccupied after 9-11 with protecting American lives. The expectation that there would be another attack and they had a, they had a responsibility to protect American lives. Interests, very significantly in the belief that the United States had to preserve its power. The United States had to preserve its power. And that you had to thwart gathering threats, gathering threats, not necessarily imminent threats, but gathering threats. Iraq was a gathering threat, a looming threat. Should it develop atomic capabilities? Should it possess and accelerate its chemical and weapons programs? Such efforts in the future would deter the United States from doing the things that policymakers believe they would need to do in future contingencies. Thwarting the proliferation of weapons, stopping the proliferation of weapons was explicitly perceived as an effort to avoid self-deterrence, self-deterrence in the future so that the United States could preserve its power and its abilities to exert its influence. So you have interests. You have ideals. I show the extent to which notions of democracy promotion, freedom and peace, the democratic peace, the notions of the democratic peace that pervaded academic circles in the, throughout the 1990s. These ideals and values did not inspire, I, I write, did not inspire, did not motivate the intervention, but were critically important in the mind of President Bush in terms of what he wanted to accomplish and what he could accomplish or what he thought he could accomplish if the United States invaded Iraq. One needs to grapple with these ideals. And then there were ideas about credibility. And I show that during the end game, when Bush is making his last minute decisions to actually go into Iraq, notions of credibility and reputation were very important. Bush did not want it to be perpetuated that the United States would make threats and not carry out on them. If you were threatening coercive diplomacy, you actually had to coerce ultimately if you faced defiance. Credibility and reputation are important factors in, this, in the story of the invasion of Iraq. But along with complexity, I stress contingency. I stress contingency. Succinctly stated, I think I show in the book that there would have been no war and no invasion of Iraq without 9-11. There would have been no war and no invasion of Iraq if that country had not been led by Saddam Hussein. And in fact, I start my book with what I like to think is a compelling factor portraying the career and trajectory of Saddam Hussein, where I depict 
the successes he had actually achieved inside Iraq during the 1970s, the nationalization of petroleum resources, the use of the revenues to promote education, public health, agricultural development, industrial growth, and of course also shape the contours of his policies of weapons of mass destruction and military aggrandizement. I try to show his accomplishments, but I also portray and emphasize his brutality, his ruthlessness, his inconsistency, his opportunism, and indeed his megalomania. There would have been no war, no invasion, in my opinion, if it weren't for some Saddam Hussein and his persistent defiance. There would have been no invasion without the belief that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction. And no invasion, in my opinion, if the United States had not experienced in what was perceived at the time to have been a success in overthrowing the government of Taliban in Afghanistan. The experience in, in Afghanistan empowered Americans to think, policymakers to think, that they might emulate that elsewhere. I try in my book, as a result of the evidence I, I saw, I, I wouldn't say I try, but I demonstrate in my book both empathy for the decision makers, and I also engage in a lot of criticism of the same decision makers. I came to empathize based on the evidence. I came to empathize with their perception of threat. I came to understand why they felt as beleaguered as they did after 9-11. I discussed the so-called threat matrix that was developed and presented to the president every single day, outlining all the threats that had come into the intelligence agencies just during the last 24 or 48 hours. The threat matrix was a terrible idea. Everybody agrees in retrospect, it was a terrible idea. But at the time, it tremendously accentuated the sense of beleaguerment, the sense of threat. I talk about the anthrax scare in the United States during October and November of 2001, when anthrax spores circulated in the mail, about a dozen Americans died, anthrax spores showed up in the Senate office building, it was closed down, the Supreme Court moved its deliberations el elsewhere. Inside the White House, there were alarms of toxic threats. All of this created a sense, a tremendous sense of threat, and then, this was accentuated again when American special forces actually moved into Afghanistan in late November and December in 2001, and they took over the Al-Qaeda training camps, and they found unmistakable evidence, incontrovertible evidence, that Al-Qaeda was seeking chemical and biological weapons. So I came to understand the perception of threat. I also came to understand, and I tried to illuminate, why attention gravitated to Iraq during November and December and January and February of, of, 2000, of two, uh, two, late 2001, early 2002. It had a lot to do with the behavior of Saddam Hussein himself. 
He expressed no remorse, unlike any other leader in the world. He expressed no remorse about 9-11. His newspapers that he controlled inside Baghdad celebrated the attack and celebrated the spread of anthrax in the United States. I talk about the ongoing intelligence reports in October, November, December 2001 that suggested that Iraq was either activating or reactivating or accelerating its chemical weapons and biological weapons programs. Some of this information came from informers who later turned out to be totally disingenuous. But what, what you found out subsequently did not shape the perception of threat at the time when policymakers genuinely believed that Saddam was accentuating biological and chemical weapons. I talk about Saddam's ongoing defiance, his refusal to allow inspectors back into the country, his continual persistent violation of sanctions, the fact that he, he challenged the no-fly zones in October, November, and December of two, 2001. So I came to understand both the perception of threat and why attention gravitated to, to Iraq. But alongside the empathy, I offer an enormous amount of criticism of the decision makers and the decision making process. I show in the book that there was shockingly poor planning, especially with respect to what the military analysts called phase four, what would happen after, after combat ended, what would happen in, post, uh, in, uh, in the period of post-war hostilities. That was called phase four. And there was shockingly little attention focused on what the United States would need to do during phase four. There was shocking discord over the goals of policy, over the goals. George W. Bush did care about promoting freedom in Iraq. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld did not care about promoting freedom and democracy in, in Iraq. There was huge discord amongst the two top policymakers in the United States about how the United States should be preparing for the post-war period in terms of what you wanted to accomplish. Donald Rumsfeld cared about two things, getting rid of Saddam Hussein, making sure Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction. That's what he cared about. President Bush actually cared about what would happen inside Iraq after Saddam's armies were, were, were defeated. He cared about promoting freedom. Rumsfeld did not and didn't really ensure that his own subordinates were systematically focusing on the goal the president himself cared about. But Bush himself sometimes failed to define his overriding priority. And this beleaguered, in my opinion, the strategy of coercive diplomacy. He could never decide and resolve in his own mind whether his overriding priority was to remove Saddam Hussein or whether his overriding priority was to deal with Iraq's alleged weapons of mass destruction. So in conclusion, my book really focuses on two leaders, Saddam Hussein and George W. Bush. 
And ultimately, Bush pitted his resolve, and that's the way he talked about it. He pitted his own resolve against Saddam Hussein's defiance. And by confronting Saddam Hussein without careful planning and without clarity about goals and priorities, Bush's strategy of coercive diplomacy led to tragedy. And there are lessons that we can learn from this experience. And if you wish, I will be happy to elaborate on them. Thank you. For that overview, very succinct. And, and, and you express the clarity that we would like to see among policymakers. Uh, before we open it up uh, to our uh, audience, our live studio audience, and also the one on Zoom, I'd just like to emphasize a few points with you. So this is an evidence-rich account. That's how you started your remarks today, and you'll see that when you read the book or you've seen it already having read the book. And it's also very fair-minded, going overboard to try to understand what was in the minds of the people at the time. So the big myth about Cheney uh, actually being the president, although he was vice president, running the White House and determining the course for war. So when you put this question to Dick Cheney himself prior to writing the book, what was his response to you? Dick Cheney, did you do this? Were you the president? What did he say? Well, I actually, I actually raised this issue. I'd like to think a little bit more discreetly than was just... Uh, uh, we know that, Mel. We know. I'm just pressed for time here. <laughs> but I, I, I was sitting across from Dick Cheney in his, in his dining room um, in, um, in, in Jackson, Wyoming. And during the interview, I said to him something to the effect of, well, a lot of people uh, think that you were making the, the key decisions, you know, how, how would you characterize uh, the impact that you were having on President Bush? And he sort of smiled at me wryly. <laughs> and he said, um, I'm not gonna elaborate on this, but I can tell you that President Bush was a big boy. Uh, <coughs> and uh, so that's about all, 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 all that he said. I think um, what, what he was telling me was that President Bush makes up his own mind. And what was striking to me, a researcher who went into this uh, project thinking that people like Cheney or alternatively Wolfowitz uh, and Donald Rumsfeld really were the key decision makers. What was striking to me was the unanimity amongst all of Bush's subordinates and advisors, and certainly amongst the people who worked for Vice President Cheney himself, like Scooter Libby and, uh, and Eric Edelman, they all emphasized the degree to which Bush was the decision maker. And, um, and you can see this right away, and I, 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 I narrate this uh, in, in, in the two or three or four pages in which I describe Bush's reactions uh, immediately after 9-11 when he's flying around to different places in, in the aircraft. And, and literally in those, in those hours when he's 
you know, just with Michael Morell and a few of his speechwriters um, are, are, are with him. And, um, you know, he instantly says, you know, we're engaged in a global war on terror. That notion of a global war on terror, of not only going after terrorists, but going after the states that support them, that became one of the defining aspects, was what Bush himself decided in the first minutes or hours uh, after the attack on 9-11. On We're going to do one more and then op open it up. So let's go to the big boy himself then. Um, I, there, there's no doubt that there's just a preponderance of the evidence about Bush's role. Uh, something similar we've had with Ronald Reagan's presidency where people didn't think he was in charge. And it's very clear, obviously, that Reagan was completely in charge. When you were able to meet President Bush after the book was done, um, and you spoke to him about the battle plan, right? One of the mythologies or arguments about the war is that they were set to go to war already, and therefore the battle plan was pretty much in place. And once the battle plan's in place, the war is gonna happen immediately after that. So you had this discussion with the president after the book, and there's the Afghanistan battle plan. Maybe you could illuminate this battle plan. It's a hinge moment in your book, the battle plan question. Well, I mean, the, the, the so-called war planning evolved, and I talk about this in, in several chapters of the book. I mean, there wasn't a specific battle plan. It, it, it evolves and takes, and takes different forms. Uh, but the war planning did begin in, in December of, of 2001, in which Bush you know, calls General Franks down to, um, to, to Texas, to his ranch, uh, and, um, and, 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 and General Franks presents the sort of first very vague itera iteration of the war plan and uh, of a war plan. And after Franks had discussed this with Donald Rumsfeld and obviously with many of his own planners during the previous two or three weeks, and so in many uh, books that have been written by journalists and, and, by, and by scholars, this engagement with the war planning is defined as, okay, we're going to war. And I try to show in the book, you know, based on the evidence that, that I gathered, both interviews with other people and, and, and as well as the documentation that exists, that, you know, the war planning was not a commitment to go to war and uh, but it, that's a very controversial statement and um and i'm aware that it's a controversial statement it's a controversial part of my book and it's key to my my whole book because it's a key to the entire strategy of coercive diplomacy condi rice you know told President Bush that what he was engaged in was called coercive diplomacy. And that's the way it became discussed mm -hmm. in, in, inside the administration. And the development of the war plan and the deployment of the forces was an element, I claim, of coercive diplomacy. A lot of people disagree with that. And, and I, can, I can see why. So when I met with uh, President Bush, uh, after my book was published, I said to him, I, I just explicitly said to him, I said, you know, a lot of my academic friends, you know, um, dis disagree with my claim that war planning did not mean war. And President Bush just 
smiled at me and he said, your academic friends don't know what they're talking about. Um, I assure you that war planning did not mean that I had made up my mind to go to war. Now, I know when I say that to many of my academic friends, they're going to say, oh, you really believe the president when he says something like that? Um, and, um, and I can see that, you know, there, the, you know, there can be argumentation about it, but it, it, to me, at least it was reassuring to hear him say as categorically as he did, um, that war planning did not mean war. I think that I substantiate that, um, uh, through many chapters of the book and another document. And this is what Steve was referring to. I mentioned this to Steve last night. Another document just uh, ha has emerged since I published my book, which was um, the a memorandum of the discussion between President Bush and Vice President Cheney with the 9-11 Commission. This, this uh, interview uh, took place in, I, I think it was 2004, when the 9-11 Commission was interrogating every leading policymaker about what had happened. And there was a, an extensive, you know, went many hours of discussion with President <clears throat> Bush and Cheney together. And this document just was declassified in just about one year ago now, in November or so of last, October, November, December of, of last year. And one of the interests, the document is not, the interview is not about Iraq. It's real. it's about 9-11 and, 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 um, and Afghanistan and Taliban. And, but what is striking in this document is in 2004, is that many times Bush expresses to his inquisitors, the 9-11 commission, how exasperated he was right after 9-11 that there were no existing war plans to deal with the Taliban and how difficult it was for him as president sort of grapple with this exigent situation when there was no plan that existed and how hard it was to get the CIA and the Pentagon to work together to resolve what should be the immediate reaction. And as you may recall, in the United States, there was tremendous amount of controversy after a week or 10 days that nothing was being done. Part of the reason nothing was being done because the plans had not been formulated in advance. And all of this suggested very clearly that what the president really wanted when he started war planning for Iraq in December of 2001 was to have plans ready should he decide in the future that it was actually necessary to take action against Iraq. And um, one of the things that, that I didn't know when I wrote my book was an interview, not that I had with Tommy Franks, but that General Tommy Franks, the head of Central <coughs> Command, had, had with other people in which he was asked about these initial planning meetings that he had with Bush and Rumsfeld and others about, about going, about, about the prospect of planning a war against Iraq. And Tommy Franks himself explicitly says, and I quote in my book, you know, I never had the feeling 
in talking with President Bush that his mind was made up to go to war. What I did know, Franks added in the next sentence, what I did know was that if we did go to war, we would be mightily well prepared to achieve our mission. That's, you know, that's the way he presents it. Okay. We have 45 minutes for questions. I already have quite a number on Zoom. I see quite a lot of hands going up. Uh, let's have David Kennedy first, Cole Bunzel, Jennifer, David Berkey, and then I'll have to go to, and I'll go to Zoom and then we'll come back. I see Yumi Moon. David. So Mel, thanks for the book and the lucidity of this presentation. Uh, Stephen, in his <laughs> usual uncanny, uncanny way, anticipated the question I had in mind about the post-publication interview with President Bush. But your response to that <clears throat> actually prompts another question. It, 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 maybe you're, you'll be too discomforted uh, to answer this, but were there any of your interviewees that were from whom you had the sense they were shining you on or misleading you or were not reliable witnesses to what you were trying to get at? And how did you assess the reliability of their testimony? Actually, I always assume that um, very experienced policymakers who had talked for dozens of years to many probing journalists were probably, um, you know, more able to spin me than I was able to probe them. I mean, I sort of, you know, assume that as a fa fact of life. Um, I tried um, to engage and question um, all the interviewees um, as, as directly and thoughtfully as I could. I tried not to ask leading questions. I tried to, I, I often frame my questions in a way that, uh, that invited them to talk expansively and then I could reflect on, on, on what they said. So for example, um, I frequently, I frequently asked people in the administration because I wanted to know how high a priority Iraq was when they first came into office, something that's talked about in so much of the literature. But I didn't ask them the question of, uh, I never asked the question, was Iraq your number one priority when you came into <laughs> office? Um, I always said, when you came into office, what did you most want to accomplish? You know, what was most on, on, on your mind? I try to ask open-ended questions. I think that I engaged um, all my interlocutors um, uh, in, in ways that over time built up a lot of confidence. Um, if you're asking, did they try to present things that justified or explained what they did? Of course they, uh, of course they did. Um, were they telling the truth? Because they, because they explained or they were seeking or trying to explain what they had done, they obviously presented it, you know, from their own perspective and their own recollection of, of what was going on. Did I think they were um, intentionally misleading me? Uh, uh, for the most part, I don't, I don't think that was the case, but keep in mind that almost um, all my book is written in my own view um, with a focus on the fact that what was said to me 
needed to be illustrated in the documents that I had available, you know, at the time. Now, that wasn't always the case, but I believe that most of the key points that were made to me uh, that really shape the contours of, of my book and my thinking, the things that were said to me, um, there's compelling evidence in the, in the written record uh, as well. Um, I, I thought speaking to uh, uh, David, you know very well that my whole career is based on going to archives. Um, you know, I'm a real archives guy. Um, uh, in fact, you know, in all my previous books, I think I had only interviewed one policymaker in, in, in 40 years of, of academic life. And now I was talking to every, every leading po policymaker. Um, so I, I, I was aware then, I am aware now that what people tell you need to be verified in the written record. I'm totally open to the proposition that in future years, there, you know, there are going to be millions of new documents. And yes, the documents may demonstrate that I was wrong about this, that, and the other thing. But I, I believe that at this moment in time, the documents and the interviews are, are really pretty complementary. Okay, I have a developing list here. It's got Cole, Jennifer, David Berkey, Yumi, and Sam Helfont. And we also have a number of questions from Zoom. So I'll do my best. Cole. Thanks for this, this lovely talk. I had a question about the role of outside experts and intellectuals, different sorts of academic friends. Um, there were a, a number of prominent academics and intellectuals uh, who became outspoken advocates and later defenders of the war in Iraq and were noted for their frequent visits to the White House and thinking in particular of <laughs> Stephen's old colleague, Bernard Lewis um, and Hoover's, Fuad, uh, yeah, Hoover's uh, own Fuad Ajami. Uh, of course, they were, they were close friends, but there were others. There was Ken Pollack, Tom Friedman, Christopher Hitchens. Um, I'm wondering in, in your research, what did you discover about the role, if any, of these intellectuals and in shaping the decision-making going into the role of I mean, going into the war. And I guess the larger question is, do intellectuals matter? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think the intellectuals mattered much in the nitty gritty weekly de de decision-making. Um, and um, I would say that I, I, I think policymakers often, um, called in the people who shared their predilections to begin with. Um, although I, I think that predilections were more complicated than, than is often portrayed. Um, so, you know, I would say that intellectuals did shape the, th the thinking of neoconservatives all through the 1990s. So if you're asking, you know, did, did some of the important writings of the, you know, of, of, um, of neoconservative thinkers in the 1990s affect people like Wolfowitz and, um, and, um, and Doug Fyth? Um, I think they did. did. Did the writings of the 1990s on the democratic peace affect the overall mindset of the policymakers that, um, you know, if you created freedom in Iraq, you'd have a more peaceful mi Middle East, um, that, you know, th those, 
those no notions um, did reside broadly in in in, in, the in the in the mindsets of the of the policymakers. So in in these general ways, um, you know, I, I would say that um, that the scholars and experts uh, had an impact. Uh, some scholars and experts had an impact. Of course, you know, there are also scholars, right, who at the very last minute, not so much the last minute, but during the last 18 months or so leading up to the war in Iraq, famous scholars, John Mearsheimer, Steve Walt, other, you know, experts, you know, strongly oppo opposed, you know, going into Iraq. They obviously had little impact on, on the final decision. Um, so uh, what I think, maybe is most salient to what to what you're saying i was struck is that um the the policymakers often spoke to iraqi emigres and um who were you know incredibly intent on getting rid of saddam hussein's regime and i do think the emigres um i i think they believed what they said they certainly affected Bush's and Cheney's sort of instinctive feeling that if we overthrow Saddam, the Iraqis are going to embrace us. They really want to be, whatever this might mean, free, um, and that um, American troops would be embraced. Uh, I think the em emigres made that case to policymakers. <laughs> Uh, very frequently, and I, I and I think the policymakers believed it, but not strictly because of what the emigres were saying to them. In fact, I would say that far more important than what the emigres were saying was their own lived was the lived experience of the policymakers themselves. What had a tremendous impact on them was their own perception of America's and the West's victory in the Cold War. That at the end of the Cold War, you know, East Germans, East Europeans, you know, just embraced freedom and democracy and were so happy to get rid, rid of totalitarian communism. Though those notions, however unnuanced um, they, they were, were dramatically important in terms of policymakers thinking about, you know, how Iraqis broadly defined inside Iraq would react to America's li li liberation. And I mean, Condi Rice, you know, said numerous times, you know, about, uh, you know, Iraqis are going to, you know, going to going to rise up and, and, and be as enthusiastic as, you know, the East Germans were at the end of the Cold War, you know, things of that sort. Jennifer. Hi, Mel. Jennifer Burns. Nice to see yeah, you. Hi. I have a question that actually is a lot um, like Colt, but I'll try to make it a little different. So on your theme of hubris, it strikes me there's probably a lot of ignorance kind of wound into that and just thinking long term. On the one hand, this sounds familiar from the Vietnam War in terms of misunderstanding some of the dynamics on the ground. On the other hand, as you know, over the Cold War, there was this huge apparatus of area studies that was built up and that was funded and that was intended to generate knowledge about different cultures, potential adversaries, potential allies. And 
you know, that really diminished after the Cold War. Do you think if that had been maintained, would that have made a difference in terms of state knowledge of these different areas or in terms of a more realistic assessment of how this culture might respond or how the United States presuppositions and assumptions might be really off? No, I don't, th I don't think so. Um, I regret what happened, but, um, but I, don't, I don't think in that respect it would have made a difference because I think the hubris that I emphasize is, uh, you know, a sense of American exceptionalism and American superiority that is, is truly inbred into most Americans. I think, uh, you know, um, Bush, uh, President Bush and Vice President Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, all really, <laughs> you know, embraced those notions. And I think, frankly, most Americans, uh, you know, in, in embrace those notions of, uh, of, of American superiority and American ex exceptionalism. I think they, and, and I call it hubris in my book, because I think it is hubris rather than ideology. So some of my critics have said to me, you know, Mel doesn't deal enough with ideology. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I think this, this was hubris. It was a sense of, you know, we have a system. I mean, in the national strategy statement of 2002, I think starts with a with a paragraph that says, you know, we represent a society of, of, you know, democratic capitalism that has proved itself for all time as the only effective way of, of, of you know, of, 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 manage, of managing modernity. That's a poor paraphrase, but that's sort of what the first paragraph of the National Security Strategy Statement of 2002 stipulated. I think there's a, just an immense amount of hubris that, uh, that, 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 shapes that type of thinking. Along with the hubris, I show in my book was uh, a pronounced sense of victimhood. Uh, and President Bush, in many, many, many of his statements, in many of his press conference, you know, talked about the United States as being innocent victims um, uh, that, uh, you know that that freedom was freedom and liberty were being assailed in the United States for no good reason, and that you know um, and and so this sense of victimhood commingled with with the hubris that I that I outlined. Um, so I don't think it's related to expert studies. I think this is you know um, in 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 the academic world in the 1990s. I think it's, you know, built deeply into the, the American psyche, you know, and of course, most nations think they're exceptional in their own <laughs> specific ways. But, you know, American exceptionalism um, re really um, did shape the mindset of almost all the key policymakers, re regardless of their tactical differences. I'm going to go to our Zoom audience now, patiently waiting. Roger Barnett asks, what, if any, effect on decision-making did the Iraq Liberation Act of 1998 have? 
It passed the Congress with strong majorities and called for the removal of Saddam Hussein. After all, this Iraq Liberation Act of 1998 was the law of the land. Yeah, ab absolutely. The Iraq Liberation Act uh, was passed in 1998. The um, sort of uh, the Clinton administration, top policymakers in the Clinton administration um, accepted it. Um, the attitudes towards Saddam Hussein in the top echelons of the Clinton administration during 1998, 1999, 2000, in my opinion, were identical to the attitudes toward Saddam Hussein that existed inside the Bush administration in the first months of, of uh, 2001. So there was a general view, democratic view and, uh, and, and Republican view that it was that it was the policy of the United States to bring about a change in Iraq. Um, but what I tried to show in my, in in my book is one. First of all, this was not anything that really preoccupied President Bush during his first eight or ten months. Uh, of the of the administration, and I, I think that's uh, absolutely unequivocal that his his focus on Iraq during the first ten months of his administration was very very minimal. I also show in that second chapter of my book that deals with American policy, Bush administration policy prior to 9-11, that the champions of regime change in the administration, like Paul Wolfowitz uh, and Donald Rumsfeld, although, although they discussed plans, um, they could never agree on anything prior to 9-11. And I explicitly outlined the discussions as we have them thus far that went on uh, amongst the deputies, and most importantly, the principles. So that some of Wolfowitz's own ideas about generating regime change, some of those never even reached the level of the, of, of the principle, um, meaning, the the, meaning the secretaries. And when the secretaries discussed, meaning Powell and Rumsfeld uh, and, and Cheney and Rice, when the principles discussed proposals for dealing with Iraq prior to 9-11, during the summer of, of, of 2001, during July and August, I show in the book that they simply could not agree on what should be done. There was, you know, no, no planning was agreed on, no <coughs> plan was agreed. Um, they, they could not resolve what, what tactically was possible to do and nothing was brought to the attention of the president of the United States himself prior to 9-11. Okay, we have one more from Zoom and then we'll come back to the room. Asher Orkabi asks, did President Bush see himself as upholding the chemical weapons taboo and the chemical weapons convention by targeting Saddam Hussein? 
I think he felt that that he was um, he 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 was enforcing the resolutions of the United Nations that Saddam Hussein himself had agreed to in 1990 and 1991. That was what he was. That that's the way that President Bush and his advisors saw themselves. They saw that they they perceived that Iraq was in violation of the obligations that it had engaged in, and they were trying to ensure Iraqi compliance with the resolutions that Iraq had signed on to. Okay, let's go back to the room. I have David Berkey, Yumi Moon, and then Sam Helfont in that order. Thank you, yeah, I also had a question on hubris and it was hoping that you would discuss that which you have to, in some measure uh, here, whether it grew out of a sort of a naivete, stories or accounts of people who had been oppressed in Iraq, whether it was American exceptionalism, sort of what the origins of that uh, and you've, you've already discussed that. At what point, so I'll, I'll ask a slightly different question here, which is to say, at what point does it become clear to the administration, to President Bush, that these ideas uh, are off the mark? That this hubris. I understand. I understand, yeah. I, I understand your question, and I'm trying to think of uh, of, of of the the appropriate answer to, to that. Um, <clears throat> I I don't think that that President Bush thought then, and I'm not sure that his top advisors even think today um, that those ideas were off the mark to 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 use your your word um the um the occupation the initial months of the occupation i demonstrate in the book um were incredibly poorly executed all the key issues were were were, were poorly handled and i think that the top policymakers might say that it was the failure of the execution of plans, uh, the mistaken assumptions that they might have had about who, for example, should constitute the Iraqi interim authority, things of that sort, rather than the basic conception of what you're saying to me that other peoples um, um, would not would not want to emulate uh, the United States. I think that uh, during the period that I'm focused on in this book, which more or less ends in September, August, September of 2003, when I think it became unmistakably clear that a big insurrection was was emerging and that the plan, the initial plans were failing. I, I don't I don't think at that point in time that that American some even then that American assumptions that these basic American assumptions were punctured. I think they thought that they had made a lot of 
miserable errors in the execution of, of, of various policies. Thank you. Yumi. I'm Yumi Moon. I study US occupation of South Korea. So I'm a big fan of your book, Preponderance of Power. So in light of your uh, book on this US global strategy after the uh, World War II, uh, I'd like to ask three questions. The first one is that this Iraqi war, I think during the time, the US lost the opportunity to consider the China or the rise, rise of the problems of US nuclear, uh, North Korea's nuclear weapons. Saddam Hussein did not have weapons, but in fact, North Korea were able, was able to develop nuclear weapons. So when, I mean, reading these, uh, the US decision makers uh, documents and interviews, did uh, US uh, decision maker have an overview of broader view of uh, the world and then somehow so-called the global strategies? That's the first questions. And then uh, if they had that one, had have done, maybe they might have been more prudent in going for the war. So when did they lose this kind of insight, global insight? That's the first question. The second question is on the intellectuals. Uh, you answered a lot of, I, I heard, learned a lot. But I remember uh, at the time I was in the United States. So I remember the Sam Huntington's uh, article and the sensational kind of impact of Sam Huntington's, Huntington's article on the uh, defense of Western civilization and the problems of Islamic uh, civilization or something like that. So somehow in light of this, uh, uh, the Iraqi Act, Liberation Act, wasn't that the case that uh, U.S. intellectuals at the time or establishment targeted Islam instead of having a more, more prudent view of what would be the threat, real threats uh, for the peace? That's the second question. The final okay, question is, just... I, I mean, it's, it, this is most, most important, the occupation and military intervention, I'm sorry. So you just really critical of the Iraqi occupation, but when military intervention and occupation in the U.S. foreign affairs were good, so what was the desire or more kind of exemplary kind of case of US occupation? This is because you have Taiwan, North Korea, South Korea, US might, have need, might need to intervene in East Asia. So then military intervention could be still an option for the United States. If so, when it is good, uh, from your reading of Iraqi failures, I'd like to hear your wisdom, sorry. Three questions per person might be above the quota, but Mel, you do your best there. You do your best. Well, I, um, I, th I think the, the administration believed that it was formulating a global strategy when 9-11 uh, when occurred. Um, I talk a little bit about it uh, in the second chapter of my book, uh, Candy Rice and her staff, the National Security Council staff, um, was in the midst of writing a national security strategy statement in the, in the middle of 2001. I would say, broadly speaking, that national security strategy statement was totally compatible with what most Democratic and Republican administrations had been saying for the prior 30 years. It was a, a, a huge amount of continuity with the idea of creating a liberal, capitalist, international order. There was a tremendous emphasis on working with allies, 
and there was um, a hope of engaging other great powers, China and, and, and Russia. The big threat that was now perceived, the global strategy was now perceived, or America's role in the world, the, the, the notion of liberal capitalist hegemony was being challenged primarily by rogue states, weapons of mass destruction, and the threat of the proliferation of weapons. So that, that was the, the, the broad mindset of, of policymakers. They state very clearly, Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld, um, state explicitly in many, in many um, congressional hearings prior to 9-11, uh, about the number one, their number one priority and preoccupation is with the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, with the likely, with the with the growing ability of rogue states like Iran, Iraq, and North Korea to develop missiles, um, medium, uh, short range, medium range, and quote eventually global intercontinental missiles that will be able to carry chemical and biological weapons or, or, or even nuclear weapons. That was the, 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 in terms of strategy, that's the looming threat that hovers over the American global order in, 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 two, in 2001, more than, any, more than anything else. It's rogue states, weapons of mass destruction, the possibility of 